The recent stock market correction has seen millions of new brokerage accounts opened across the globe. Many people with no prior experience have been willing to put their hard-earned dollars on the line to begin their trading careers. If you've just started trading or you know someone that has, hopefully this episode can help you either increase your profits or prevent you from losing your shirt. This interview was recorded on July 1st. At that time, we were seeing the first cases of Melbourne's second wave of COVID-19. The US and Australian markets were within 5 and 15% of their previous highs. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Medical Money Podcast, where we help doctors earn, grow, and protect their money. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Please send your questions, comments, and feedback to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. A quick shout out to our sponsor, ShareSite. ShareSite is the simplest way to monitor and manage your trades or share portfolio. If you own shares, you know how tedious it is to maintain a spreadsheet of your holdings. There's transaction prices, brokerage, confirmation notes, and dividend payments you need to account for. If you're an active trader, paperwork is an absolute nightmare. ShareSite does all that and more. You can try ShareSite for free and manage up to 10 holdings. As a valued listener of my podcast, you'll get four months free access if you decide to upgrade to their premium features with an annual subscription. Visit this link, medicalmoney.com slash ShareSite. That's S-H-A-R-E-S-I-G-H-T to get started. Today, my guest is Chris Tate. Chris's career has gone from academic immunology to stockbroking and then full-time trading during the 80s bull market. He's been trading successfully for over 30 years. With Louise Bedford, Chris heads up the trading game where they've been teaching and mentoring traders for over 20 years. I used to listen to Chris on my CD player as I drove to uni. In today's interview, I get his insights into the truth about trading based on his years of experience working with countless traders. We dispel some trading myths, discuss the psychology of trading, and explain his risk management strategy. Many of his insights are applicable to all forms of investing. The interview has been split into two parts to help make it more consumable. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk about trading today. How are you going? I'm very well, Andrew. I'm enjoying the joys of partial lockdown in Victoria. I must admit, I I looked at the figures as they were coming out and was graphing them and thought, if this was a stock price, I'd probably buy it. And pyramid on the way on the way up? Basically, yes. Well, I'll get you to kick off today's conversation by telling us about your background. What's been your career journey and how did you get started in trading? I, I'm one of those people who arrived at a point in time uh, in my life that I really didn't set out to be at. Uh, my career trajectory, whilst it sounds linear when you describe it, is really quite chaotic. Uh, I, I was happily ensconced in, well, it's probably overstating it, happily ensconced in university doing uh, uh, basic research in immunology and was, was happily heading down sort of the career academic road and gradually grew more and more sort of disenchanted with the university system, politics, and I had a somewhat pivotal moment when I, I ran into a friend of mine who I'd started first year with and 
I, I said, I haven't seen you for years. Where have you been? And he said, well, I dropped out and did economics. And I went, God, isn't that boring? And he said, yes, but it pays really well. And I said, so where have you been? And he said, well, I've just gotten back from London, where I've been for a year on assignment, and I'm off to New York for a year on a secondment to one of our departments there. And not being well-versed in social norms, I asked him how much he got paid. <laughs> and and it was around five times what I was getting as a, a tutor at university, beavering away on what I thought were, were very, very interesting problems, but dealing with the annoyances of first-year students. So it was... I, I began to do a little bit of consulting and contract work for biotech firms that were setting up here in Victoria, and that exposed me to sort of the commercial realities of life. And I had some friends I'd gone through graduate school, and they introduced me to uh, people who were involved in finance, and the interest just grew from there. I began trading my own account. Uh, I was very, very lucky. I began trading at the beginning of the 80s bull market and thought I was a staggeringly gifted investor. Uh, not realising that bull markets tend to make everybody think that they're staggeringly talented. Uh, as that was sort of unfolding, I thought, need to learn more. And I thought, and this is one of the classic mistakes in my own career development, I thought, who knows about trading and investing? And I thought, stockbrokers must, they do it all day. That was clearly not true. Uh, I hadn't read the sales brochure correctly. Of all the people I've met in investing or trading, call it what you want, stockbrokers are the least informed. But I managed over time because I had access to a trading floor, I had a constant stream of information, I was capable of using a calculator, which staggered them. Uh, I was capable of building my own trading system. It was quite fortunate I left broking in my early 30s and sort of went on sabbatical, just doing my own thing, until, oh, what, 21 years ago, when my business partner kept ringing me up, saying, I'm bored, and I would go, well, I'm not really, I, I quite like being by myself, and, and over time, the trading game grew out of that uh, friendship and association, and so I find myself at this point in time, still sort of semi-retired, but still doing things. Hmm. And so you've been really a professional trader and educator now for decades. Uh, well, it sounds a very long time when you say it like that. <laughs> well, a, yes. a number of market cycles, at least. Oh, that's better. That's much more polite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so today, given that you have had this experience today, I'd like to get your perspectives on trading as a source of income, what it takes to become a successful trader, and then we can have a discussion on risk and position sizing, as this is relevant to all investment portfolios, not just to those who are trading. Let's start by, can I get by starting off talking about trading by getting you to explain what trading is and how it differs from a long-term buy and hold approach? Mm, okay. Let's start with buy and hold because there's one or two things to unpack there. The notion of buy and hold is built around the precept that what you do is you find a company that you perceive to be very good long-term value. This assumes that you uh, in many ways have some degree of foresight into what the world will be in 10, 20, 30 years' time. And you just buy that instrument and you hold on to it. There's an unfortunate problem with this approach in that it doesn't take into account that, as you said, the market goes through cycles. Uh, 
And in that sort of cyclical nature, some things drop out of favour, some things come into favour, and you miss that cyclical movement. But it also means that you become somewhat blasé about risk management. And I, I can guarantee you there, there are old stocks like Babcock & Brown, which was touted as becoming an ex-Macquarie bank. There's ABC Learning, which was the childcare centres. There are people holding those now saying they're going to come back. Yes, but they've been delisted. They can't come back. The, the, buy, and, the buy and hold mentality means that by definition – you literally buy and hold. It, it's a hell or high water, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead approach. And it doesn't mesh with the reality of what we encounter. For example, if you were a, a buy and hold investor of our, our four largest banks and you began that approach, what, in 2015, 2016, you're probably down 50%, which means in the upcoming cyclical period, and they will need to gain 100% to get you back to where you started from. Now, many people uh, sort of comfort themselves by saying, yes, but I still get the dividend. It takes an awful lot of fully frank dividend at a 4 4.5% yield to compensate for a 50% loss, and in fact, doesn't. What trading does, and trading can be over any time frame, uh, many people have the perception that trading is uh, – you get this notion of day traders, and that unfortunately has polluted the impression of what trading is. For example, I have a trading system that uses weekly data, and what that means is on a Sunday evening, my system downloads the data for the previous week, runs a particular scan or algorithm I built, throws up a list of candidates, I check those candidates against a uh, a running sheet I have, I make the decision which ones I will buy, I enter the orders, I go away until next week. But at the same time, I have a trading system that trades using uh, data collected over a period of four hours. So it becomes, trading becomes what you want it to be, but trading is a verb, it's a doing word. So it is a dynamic process. But the dynamic process is based upon what you actually want out of the market. It is, how do you see the world? And part of that question of how do you see the world is, what are your time constraints? What, what other things are occurring in your life that may push you towards a, a given approach? And the majority of people uh, that I've encountered tend to drift towards weekly trading and certainly all the medicos who've gone through our mentor program begin trading a weekly system. Uh, many will add to that when they move towards retirement and supplement it with something else. But the key approach for them, because of the time requirement, is simply to start weekly. And the other thing I should mention is that many people think that the more you trade, the more you make. That's not actually true. True wealth creation is undertaken by riding very, very long market trends. It is finding the stock at $1 and still having it at 10 but having pyramided all the way in, so you're continually adding to the position. And that's actually how wealth is created. Uh, people think that if you trade all the time, 
then surely you'll be making more money. But that doesn't seem to hold up either in my experience, my anecdotal observation or others, and nor does it occur to be true when you look at the literature of trading. And so when you were working in the brokerage firm, were you ever a buy and hold uh, type investor? No. No, we've no, always been in, in the short term, well, shorter because, term. Because, because I'm a little bit quantitative by training, I, I entered markets when options were becoming a thing. Exchange-traded options had just been listed in Australia. And one of the things that actually got me a job in a broking house, quite surprisingly, was I had one of the old square, they, they look like a chocolate block, uh, Hewlett-Packard calculators. doesn't have an equals button, but it's actually very, very good for doing chain calculations and options pricing. And the brokers I worked with thought it was black magic, uh, when in actual fact it was just a bog-standard Hewlett-Packard calculator. And so being quantitative and and wanting to explore options and what they could do, that does naturally drift you towards the shorter-term approach to trading. But uh, there was still that realisation that wealth wealth is created by riding longer-term trends, and it doesn't matter whether it's an Australian equity, a US equity, a commodity, whatever, the same principle applies. Unfortunately, most people think you get rich in trading by buying a stock at a uh, dollar and selling it at a dollar five. After all, you've made 5%, you get nothing in the bank, you're doing fabulously. The problem is in three or four years' time, you look back and the stock you sold at a dollar five is now $10, and it's very difficult to people to overcome that. Mm. And so if there's different styles of trading. You said you you know, you have a weekly session. Day trading, swing trading, momentum trading, and trend trading, can you shed a bit of light onto each of these approaches? Basically, all, all of trading can be boiled down into three basic sort of uh, statements. If it's going up over the time frame you are trading, you buy it. If it's going down over the time frame you're trading, you sell it, and you don't bet the farm. Now, many people try, and there's a lot of false dichotomies in trading because everybody likes to have a label of what they are or what they do. The majority of – no, let me rephrase that. All of trading works on the principle that you have bought an instrument at X price and you sell it at a multiple of X. Now, it may be that you are a trend follower. I should say, also, none of trading is predictive. We are completely incapable of predicting price direction. We, we simply can't do it. It is beyond us at this point in time. Uh, many people claim to be able to, and, and I've had many people approach me over the years who've told me that they've been able to pick turning points in markets to a single point. Unfortunately, they all seem to live at home with their mother and drive a 1975 Corolla, which is not what I would expect from someone who was perfectly capable of picking market direction. So when you talk about momentum trading, you're simply talking about trading in the direction of where momentum is. Where is the strength in terms of a macro approach, what sector, what market, and then that narrows down to what instrument and what's happening over the time frame your attempted trade. Uh, swing trading is a little bit more aggressive, but is basically the same thing. 
they're all attempts to spot uh, the beginning of trends. And trends can exist over a minute, five minutes, ten minutes. They can exist over years. But they all have the same commonality. So what are the most commonly traded instruments and which do you choose to trade and why? Okay. In terms of generic scale of things, the most liquid market in the world is foreign exchange. And that's simply because it is what's known as a peer-to-peer market. And by peer-to-peer, I mean that it is used by banks. There is no central foreign exchange, exchange per se. It's all individuals on a trading desk winging other individuals on a trading desk. Next biggest market is commodities. And within commodities, the biggest markets are the energy sector uh, by far. In terms of equities markets, US market biggest in the world. The Australian market only occupies about, at present, about under 2% of world market capitalisation. The most popular instruments you see for retail investors here in Australia seems to be split along... Uh, generational lines. People who are sort of 20 to 25 are probably mad keen on cryptocurrencies. People who are 30, 35, probably FX. Older than that, people will dabble in those instruments, but their prime generator or their prime tool are basically equities. So it's the sort of thing, the sort of things you would be familiar with. If you heard the names, you would know what they are. And it doesn't matter whether they're traded locally or on the US. That seems to be the vehicle of choice for most people. It's also many people use superannuation for their investing. And many uh, self-managed super funds forbid the trading of derivatives. So they're, they're somewhat limited in what they're able to trade. And so which uh, which do you choose to trade? Which instruments are on your uh, uh, basket? Look, to be honest, I tend to be somewhat agnostic about instruments. My my weekly scan uh, scans equities in the US, Europe, Japan, and locally. And I can only do that because the, the technology manages the information for me that there's simply too much for an individual to do. My daily system trades a small basket of commodities and indices. My four-hourly system trades an even smaller basket of commodities and indices. The short-term system primarily trades the energy sector and we've got three or four indices, and and that's largely it. Okay, so it's markets where uh, you've got decent liquidity and and often open 24 hours a day. Very, very very much so. One One of the things that catches people is liquidity. The unfortunate thing about the Australian market is when it's running, it runs very, very strongly, uh, particularly in the price bracket of stocks that sit between, say, 50 cents and $5. They run very, very hard. But once you get below that, you can run into liquidity vacuums where all of a sudden either the buyers or sellers just disappear. And, and it's not so much a worry if the buyers, di- sorry, if the sellers disappear. That's a good thing. If the buyers disappear, that's a bad thing because that means you can't get out. You're stuck. And so liquidity is one of those things that seems to slip off investors' and traders' radar and they, they can get themselves stuck or get themselves caught. Yeah, I've seen a, a couple of mates go with larger short positions on Australian equities and then market closes, something like, uh, you know, Rio might then gap up on the, on the uh, cross 
uh, market over in the UK, yes. and then suddenly your short position, you've got no way of closing it out to the following day. Meanwhile, you're still going to get your margin call if you're on leverage. Oh, you're still going to take a caning whichever way it's sliced. Yep. Technical analysis, just for our um, listeners who aren't familiar with trading, can you please explain technical analysis and then also the role of fundamental analysis in your approach? Technical analysis is an an immensely broad church, and that's one of its great failings in that it it attracts what I would call a lunatic fringe. The the lunatic fringe attempt to uh, trade by use of astrology, sunspots. Uh, They believe that each share has a particular vibration. It sounds very, very new agey, but it's actually from the 1920s. It just goes to show that human stupidity is a constant through time. The way I approach technical trading is on the assumption that I know nothing. The market will tell me everything. I just have to find a mechanism for listening. But even then, the only thing I know is the past. I don't know the future. And one of the great difficulties people have when they come to investing is that the future is opaque. I would imagine, for example, in your profession, you're managing a situation. The future is not opaque to you. You have some idea of what will happen. Whereas in my profession, I have no idea what will happen. And I have to manage that. And the way we manage that is by managing the risk associated with trading. So I'm basically a trend follower. The emphasis is on the word following. And that actually frees me up because it means I don't, I don't need to be worried about the future. I'm, I will let it unfold as it wants to. The price will go whatever direction it wants to go. Whether I'm involved or not, I'm immaterial to the way the market functions. And the best analogy I can use for the way I sort of approach markets is it's akin to surfing. When when you surf, you can sit there for hours on end in just slop, just bouncing up and down on your board, and occasionally something touches your foot and uh, you have a conniption. Or some days the waves will be brilliant and they will be fabulous and you will be perfect. Other days the waves will be brilliant and perfect and you're rubbish, and some will drop you on your head. But the thing is you don't know where the next wave is coming from. The only thing you do know is that there will be another wave and you just have to be patient enough to be sitting in the right spot at the right time, not having been ground into the sand too many times that you've given up. And so trend following is a really simple mechanistic approach. People tend to want to make things as hard as they possibly can. There is this human desire for complexity, which is unwarranted in trading. And we see this when we drift into the realm of fundamental analysis, the notion of learning about the business, knowing about the business, reading the profit and loss. I consider these to be part of sort of a a human bias, which uh, which I would call a narrative fallacy. With humans, stories are much more important than data. Our brain is adapted to being receptive to stories. It's why the majority of politicians are lawyers simply because they're good at crafting a narrative that people want to hear. They're also fairly high up on the immorality scale, which gives them a leg up above everyone else. But if you had a a scientist or a medico 
as a politician, they would find it very difficult because they can't sit there with an iPad having done a SWOT analysis and present it to people. People won't accept it. But in, in markets, people will accept this, these narratives, these stories. People want to know what's the story of the stock. In my world, it plays uh, n- no role at all. And it, it plays no role at all because way, way back in my broking days, I found out very quickly that the last thing sort of companies will tell people is the actual truth. Reports are sort of brilliant examples of how to hide the truth within a jumble of words and numbers and charts and all sorts of things. But those words are very, very powerful. So in my world, it actually pay, it, it plays no part. When people ask me about the companies that I hold and what they do, I really honestly have no idea. I don't even know their name. I know their code, but I don't know their name. And often I'm very, very surprised by what they do. And so if you mentioned you trade um, uh, energy sector. How much of you know the global economy and energy prices do you take into consideration when coming up with positions uh, to trade? Does that play any role at all, or you're really just following the trends? None. I really just follow the trends. Yeah. One, one of the good things about the energy sector, let, let's pick crude oil, it's outside of uh, bonds and the like, it is the most commonly traded commodity. It has an enormous amount of price discovery. This price discovery is a good thing for me because it means that people are working hard to work out what a true value is and what a true trend is. This means that when things like crude, um, gasoline, heating oil, London gas oil begin to trend, they trend very, very well. Now, many people uh, get hooked on trying to match what the Saudis are doing versus what's happening with the Russians. They try and count the number of tankers that are anchoring the Philippines, all this sort of stuff. I'm simply not interested. Again, we, we default back to my position that price will tell me everything I need to know. I just have to listen. And the problem people face is that we're very poor listeners. We actually want to try and tell the market what it should be doing as opposed to what it is doing. And it is one of those situations where markets will do whatever they're going to do. Your opinion as to what they should or should not be doing is actually really worthless. It's interesting seeing uh, over the last few weeks how many uh, modern-day Nostradamuses there are in the Twitter sphere and even in Facebook trading groups where they're drawing up their technical data with um, all the resistance and support points and giving their predictions basically so that you know if it happens, they can say, I told you so. Uh, it's, it's, what, as, yeah. what, what is intriguing about that is the, the fluidity of their opinion in that uh, – they, 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 they remind me in many, many ways of these people who, uh, cults who each year predict the end of the world and they go off on their little retreat and they pray and do whatever they do. The end of the world doesn't come. But then they go through this profound rationalization process as to why their prediction didn't work. Uh, traders are the same. Uh, traders are very, very poor at saying, well, I got that wrong. 
and let's move on. Okay. And so you mentioned uh, trading is pretty straightforward from, from you on a routine basis. What is a typical trading schedule for you and how important do you think routine is for, to be a successful trader? I, I actually think that routine is profoundly important for anybody's success. I, I can't imagine that, for example, you would in your line of work, wander into the OR and go, right, uh, what are we doing? I remember, here we go, and and try and make it up on the spot. You you would have essentially what I would call a pre-game routine and that that routine is the same. Trading is the same. I I do the same thing in the same way every day. It, It sounds very boring and trading is by definition a very boring process if you're excited by it, you're actually doing it incorrectly. It's it's all right to be proud of your achievement, but if you're emotionally invested in what you're seeing on the screen, then you're doing it in the wrong way. And my routine doesn't alter. Uh, I'm an early riser, so I view the markets at 5.30, see if anything's been knocked out overnight, do a quick cursory glance of what's occurred, uh, then it's generally off to the gym or the pool. And then once I come back from that and I've settled down, I sit and take a more reasoned and calmer view of what's occurring. Because the last thing you want to be doing is to fall into that trap of that sort of very reflexive thinking, that, that very emotive, very, very caught up in what's occurring style of thinking. Because in trading, there's no problem that you can't actually make worse by that sort of thinking. And so once you've got a routine, the routine centers and anchors you. And it, it's it's that anchoring you need, particularly when it all goes wrong. Yeah, I think that routine, yeah, you mentioned about me uh, having a routine and uh, you know game plan before the day. I think for me, it's always making sure that I've got a hand ventilator bag when uh, just in case the ventilator breaks down during an operation and I've had other friends who, who haven't checked and then they've been blowing down the tube when, when the uh, ventilator goes down. Yeah, I would imagine yours is a sort of profession where you want everything to hand without looking. It, it would be, I would say, that pilots are in the same position. They want everything to hand without looking. They don't really want to be looking at the manual going, okay, I've done A, what's next? Because if you've got to that stage talking to pilot friends of mine, it's all really gone horribly wrong and it's going to be a disaster for somebody. And trading's the same. You want a a clearly defined set of actions for each thing that could occur, each, each eventuality, so that you're not trying to make it up on the spot because making things up on the spot is the road to disaster. Yeah, I think uh, they, they mentioned to us that you know during these times of crisis, you uh, fall to the level of your training or your systems, not rise to the level of your Superman status that you would like to think you'd be able to do. Very, very much so. Yeah. And uh, the reason I asked about the routine was that lots of my colleagues and other people in trading circles have been kind of, or not trading circles, but just investing circles who are basically treating lockdown like a chance to sit at the poker table, expecting that the time you sit at the poker table, you're going to have the hot hand and you're going to yes. trade they trade for a few hours. You'll get a Porsche at lunchtime and you'll quit your job in the afternoon and who cares about lockdown? And, and uh, it will all be good. And, uh, yeah. yeah and all I can say about that is, well, good luck with that and let us know how it turns out for you. 
Yeah, so on that, what do you think are the most common myths or misconceptions about trading that uh, beginners think they can do when they just step into the ring? Look, there's, there's a few. And if we, we set aside the, the low-hanging fruit, which is the myth that advisors, be they brokers, fund managers, financial advisors, know what they're doing, perhaps one of the most prevalent myths is actually somewhat of a paradox in that the advisory industry – has attempted to convince everybody that this is far too hard for them and it's best left to the professional. The flip side of that is that many people take the sort of, I call it the YouTube here hold my beer approach, where they perceive it to be much easier than it is. The truth lies somewhere in the middle in that it's a skill you have to acquire. You can't just do a course for a morning on a weekend and start thinking that you're going to be completely up to speed with not only the technicalities of markets, but more importantly, the emotional strain they put on you. Because as you said, decision-making collapses under stress. And if you have no training and you've not been brought up to speed, then Everything collapses around you. The analogy I use is like when I first started boxing sometime last century. Many people think that when you start boxing, what happens is you just put in a mouth guard, hop in the ring, and you start belting the living daylights out of one another. That's not true. The first thing you learn how to do is to wrap your hands so that you don't hurt them. The second is put the gloves on. You're then constantly reminded by your trainer to put your mouth guard in irrespective of whether you're sparring or not, so it becomes second nature. And then you're taught the five basic punches. You're taught how to stand. You're then taught how to move. You might then graduate to a form of sparring, which is just touching the other person's gloves. And the intensity builds from there. But each step is graduated along the way. The unfortunate thing about trading is it, it, seems, to, it seems to be a function of males, and males have this testosterone-driven approach that looks at it and says, well, other people can do it. How hard could it be? It, it, it's somewhat akin to when you're watching the Olympics with friends at a barbecue, you'll see highly talented people like gymnasts doing remarkable things with their body. And then you'll have some idiot go, oh, six weeks, maybe I could be doing that. They will then attempt to do a handstand or something and then probably head off to see one of your colleagues for the afternoon in ER. And so, guys, you think a, a greater a greater risk of blowing oh, up? Oh, very, very much so. Testosterone does tend to make you a little bit stupid. It, it also, because of the very, very narrow focus that males have, it does tend to drag people towards the notion of the, the much, much shorter-term trading uh, Males, by and large, are probably addicted to bright, shiny things. So they see things like Bitcoin, and they will do stupid things like mortgage their house and buy Bitcoin at its peak because they have this sort of uh, aggressive testosterone-driven approach, not, not realizing that trading is a game of defense, not offense. Because if we revert to something a little bit technical. In game theory, if you are playing a superior opponent, and let's assume the market is a superior opponent because it knows all, and it is, it's the thing you are 
attempting to sort of ride in the right direction, if you attempt to play against a superior opponent to win, you inevitably lose. It's just the way it works out. But if you play to survive, you can actually win. There's an interesting nuance in the way it works out. Most males play to win, and I used to see this on trading floors. Uh, traders would put their hands in their pocket to protect their what they considered to be their most vital asset, push their groin forward and go, I'm going to show the market. And, and, and all that happened was come the following Monday, they were driving a cab because you can't show the market anything. That's a nice segue into my next part, which is on about trading successfully. I've heard the saying that there are old traders and there are bold traders, but there are old, no old, bold traders. What personality characteristics are necessary to become a successful trader? And do you think that anybody can do it? Okay. In terms of can anyone do it? Yes. However, and there is always a however, you, you need to have a personality that is resilient and that is capable of making mistakes. Because trading is a profession of making mistakes. But that's not a problem because there's no nexus between being right and making money. Because the way trading works is, let's assume you've got a basket of 10 trades. The first five are small losses. The next three are barely break-even. But the next two are spectacularly good. Your win rate is quite poor, but you're still making money. And that's the central issue. And this is a problem we've seen in people whose profession requires them to be right. For example, you couldn't manage your practice by saying, look, put 10 people to sleep, five, not so good, three, meh, two, woke up, went to the Olympics, perfect, superhuman now. It's a very different mindset that's required. And we find this problem with engineers. We find it with mathematicians. Once people accept that being right is not what you're attempting to do, what you're attempting to do is be profitable. And being right or wanting to be right is an ego-based decision. We, we all want confirmation that we're clever. We, we all want to be the hero of our own narrative. But markets don't work that way. Markets say, all right, here's what we can do. If you manage to get a small number of trend-following trades right during the course of the year, you will be successful and very profitable. On the proviso, you accept that you will be wrong, and when you are wrong, you will have to make a decision that admits you are wrong, which means you sell the instrument that you had bought that you had gotten it wrong. And this is the attraction of buy and hold, because buy and hold never means that you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, I got that wrong. Because admitting error is a very, very problematic thing for the majority of people. But traders are wrong all the time. But being wrong is inconsequential and meaningless to us. So anyone can do it. But you just have to accept that it's not an intellectual endeavor by any stretch of the imagination. What people do on a day-to-day basis is much harder intellectually than trade. Trading is really quite simple intellectually. But emotionally... It, it does have its ups and downs and you need to be aware of those and to ride those out and to accept and understand that they're going to occur. 
Mm. So it seems about more about mental fortitude and dealing with setbacks, uh, as and they're dealing with uh, humility at, at the um, the positive side. And very much so. And that's that's the perfect word, humility. You must always be humble. The moment you get cocky is the moment you get blown out of the water. And so what sort of expected returns and win-loss ratio should someone who enters trading expect? You know, we talk about the all-ordinaries going up at somewhere between 7 and 10% over a period of de- – or annually over a period of decades. What should traders be thinking is a, um, a reasonable expected return? Oh, here's the world's hardest question. Let, let me start off by sort of giving it a boundary. There is no upper limit placed on what you can make. Markets don't have an upper performance limit in terms of what you can extract from the market. Uh, We've got people who've extracted extraordinary sums of money from the market. So it's unbounded to the upside. However, it's bounded to the downside. And the lower boundary is how much money you have. I shouldn't say you can't go below that because people have managed to do that. In terms of rate of return, what we what we look to what we say to people, and what I what I think is logical, is that trading is a small business. It takes the majority of small businesses two to three years to break even. Now that's not to say it's going to take you that, but you need to have this expectation that you're not going to get rich tomorrow. That this is a learning process. And beyond that, your returns are bounded by, look, to a small degree, the markets you trade, but not as much as people think by any stretch of the imagination. Your personal commitment, but it's not commitment to the market, it's commitment to understanding how you function in light of what the market does. And that is really the important driver. And it falls back to this notion of trading psychology in that, You need to be introspective. You need to work out why you do things in a certain way. Why do I behave in a certain way when I'm placed in such a situation? In terms of a concrete expectation, our expectation is that people generate what is known as alpha. Alpha is simply the return you generate over and above the all ordinaries. So if I'm running a weekly portfolio, my benchmark is the all ords. And I want to generate at the end of the year a positive return over and above that because that differential is uh, a reflection of my skill. It's a measure of skill. What you yeah. make beyond that is is dependent upon the individual and how they apply themselves. As I say, it, it's not down to market or instrument really. Yes, you need to be in the right market at the right time. One of the greatest drawbacks people have is that they're in the wrong market at the wrong time. Uh, For example, post the GFC, it was really pointless being in Australian equities. You needed to be in US equities. And so if you're in Australian equities, you were hamstringing yourself. You, You were placing a cap on what you could or could not achieve. Being in the US market took that cap off and allowed people to be extremely successful. And, and even today, the Australian market is a little bit bumpy. It, it was looking more positive, and then we ran straight into COVID-19. Hmm. And it did take us a much longer period to get back up to um, pre-GFC levels. Um, much longer. 
Yeah, which was only uh, last year it as opposed was. to 2015 for the yes, um, S&P 500. And part of that was some of the, the structural anomalies within sort of the Australian economy in that I think – I've forgotten the exact figure, but I think it, there's about six or seven trillion in investment real estate, which, which in many ways denudes other areas of investment, particularly the notion of venture capital. Uh Every man and his dog was buying every property they could find, and so there wasn't there wasn't this widespread participation in markets, which which you do actually need. Mm, yeah, it was interesting. Yesterday, I was listening to a podcast uh, with a guy called Tobias Carlo, who's a um, fund manager, a value investing uh, fund, and he got asked this question about the, is the Australian market underrated or overrated? And his reply was, in Australia, it is overrated, but to the world, the Australian market is underrated. So it was just interesting to have that uh, perspective. That- Again, we come back to perception. And that brings us to the end of the first half of my interview with Chris Tate. Be sure to listen to part B, where we talk about getting started as a trader, risk management, and dealing with losses. If you're interested in learning how to optimize your finances, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, head over to my blog, medicalmoney.com, and subscribe to stay updated. If you know a colleague who might also find this information useful, please share this with them. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.